Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. And again, this is the continuation of the practical application. Mentioned that last week as we looked at it, um, as we looked at the first couple of verses last week. Uh, an argument can be made based on the flow here. You know, you always talk about who is the writer of Hebrews. I mentioned this last week, and in Paul's writings. It's very, very common that he would give doctrine first. He would tell you what's correct, what's true, doctrine. Then he would give exhortation. In other words, because this is true, this then is how you should live. Uh, for, and I mentioned last week, Romans first 11 chapters are all doctrinal in content. Uh, and then in chapter 12 through 16, it's practical. And chapter 12 starts out, I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, and so on. Uh, so, so based on what you know, by the mercies of God, and the first eight chapters are salvation, this is how you should live in light of that. Ephesians, the first three chapters. Uh, and then in chapter four, it starts out that we're, we're encouraged to walk worthy of, of the vocation, the calling that we have in the Lord as believers. So three chapters of doctrine and then three chapters of very practical living. Uh, well, when we come to Hebrews, 12 chapters of doctrine and just telling us about Jesus, how he's so much better than the things of uh, the Old Testament economy, meaning the, the priesthood and the high priest and the sacrifices and and. Uh, he's the establisher of the new covenant better than the old covenant, which is the Mosaic law uh, and that type of thing. So how, much, how he's so much better, better than angels, better than Moses, uh, and, and so on. And then in chapter 13, it gets very practical. Uh, and so that would be an argument why possibly, I don't think it's conclusive by any means, uh, that Paul could be the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I, I, I sit in the camp that we won't know until we get to heaven. And we'll all go around asking Luke, Paul, Paulos, whatever, you know, there's other guys out there, people have said, wrote, uh, wrote Hebrews. Said, Did you write Hebrews? Did you write Hebrews? And whoever, whoever is the first one that finds out, they get the, uh, they get the, they get the surprise gift. Um, I don't know what it is, but you get it. So, but that's one of those things I don't think we'll know until we get to heaven. I know some people are convinced it's Luke or Apollos or Paul or whatever the case might be. This would be an argument for Paul. So as we get to verses 3 and 4, there's some very practical things here. And the first part is uh, 
uh, ministering to those who are in prison or those who are suffering. And the, and the, and the, and the next verse is some instructions on, on marriage uh, and, and, the, and holy matrimony. And, and holy is certainly an, a, a proper word to use for matrimony, to use for marriage. Um, and holy meaning, again, we've talked about this before, holy literally means different or unique, set apart. Sometimes the word holy, especially in the earlier scripture, what we call the Old Testament, um, the word uh, kadosh, holy, is, uh, is translated within three or four verses. Sometimes it's translated as, uh, as holy, and sometimes it's translated as sanctified. Like in Ezekiel chapter 36, 19 through 25. And sanctified is what holy is, set apart. But it's, it's set, a, set apart with an intrinsically spiritual purpose. And holy is always used in that connotation. Uh, it's intrinsically spiritual, if you want to use the word religious. But I think spiritual is better. Um, holy Bible, holy temple, holy vessels, holy land. Um, you know, we can, probably a lot of other holy stuff we can think of, uh, that type of thing. <clears throat> and so when you talk about matrimony, and I'm getting ahead of myself, it's holy matrimony. Uh, it, 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 is, it is uniquely spiritual from God and is distinct from any other union you find on earth. And, and I won't say anything more now because I'll say it when we get to verse 4. Uh, but it is holy. It is God's plan. Man bastardizes it, if I can, I just used that word, so I did use that word, uh, unfortunately, but um, unfortunately. But first, verse 3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourself also in the body. Now, you have two parallel thoughts here. Remember them that are in bonds and them which suffer adversity. And then the second thought is as bound with them, speaking in bonds, as being yourself also in the body. Now, remember itself is in, in the present imperative. Uh, and you, you have in language, you have imperative and you have indicative. So an imperative is what? Who's the English teacher here? Okay, you don't have to. Imperative is a command. An indicative is stating a fact. And, and it's important. Um, I, I, I'll just digress for one moment. Okay? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter um, 13. I think it's 13. Could be 14, but we'll find out when we get there. Thirteen, thirty-one. <clears throat> now, and we're not going to spend a long time on this, hopefully. Cor Corinthians, First Corinthians. Corinthian church is the model church for all Christendom for all of time, right? No, no. It's, it's, it's the model church in how not to do things, okay? They were doing everything wrong. I mean, it's from the very get-go. They're being rebuked by the Apostle Paul. Uh, they were wrong on uh, 
they were fighting amongst each other, taking brothers to law, abusing the Lord's Supper, um, questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And when it gets to the question of, of gifts, because that's the, uh, and, and boy, I'm, uh, maybe I should, okay, go back to verse 1 of chapter 12. Um, and I'm going to try to keep this short. But look at chapter 12, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now, look at the word gifts in your Bible. What's unique about that word? It's in italics. Almost every translation, King James, New King James, American Standard. Uh, I'm not sure on the NIV. Anybody have an NIV here? Anyway, it's in italics. Now, why is it in italics? Because it's not in the original language. It's not in the original Greek. And what the King James translators did, and many others that followed, they, they would add a word and put it in italics. They thought they were clarifying the, uh, the passage by adding that word, but they put it in italics to let you know it's not in the original language. So, literally what verse 1 reads, now concerning being spiritual, brethren. Now, how is our spirituality manifested? By the gifts God's given us. By the outworking of our gifts. But gifts is not here. Okay? Um, it's talking about spiritual. And this, the 12, 13, and 14 is a rebuke that the Corinthians are misusing the gifts they were fighting over them. Everybody wanted the showy gift, yada, 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 that type of thing. And um, so when you come down to um, chapter 12, not chapter 13, chapter 12, verse 31, <clears throat> he has spent 30 verses rebuking, about, rebuking them over the misuse of, of being spiritual by misusing gifts. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time. I keep on saying that. And, you know, you just have to take my word for it or read it. Then he says in verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet show, I show unto you a more excellent way. Now, ask yourself this question. He has spent 30 verses rebuking them for coveting the best gifts. Why would he in verse 31 then turn around and tell them, go ahead and covet the best gifts? Does it make sense? No. He's told them, and you can read it all the way through and, and see, um, there's schism in the body and they're all after their own thing and that type of thing. And what it gets down to is ultimately, uh, is this an imperative or is this an indicative? In other words, if he is commanding them, I want you to covet the best gifts, then it's in the imperative. But if he's stating a fact, that's, a, that's, con that's the indicative. It's the indicative. He's not saying covet the best gifts. He's just spent 30 verses rebuking him about that. So what he's saying is, you are coveting the best gifts. You're not doing what's right. This is wrong. 
I'm going to show you a and then the last part of verse 31. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Now, ultimately, what is the more excellent way? 13, chapter 13. Love. Love. And, and does love look for its own interests? Or does love look for, and we looked at this last week a little bit. No, love looks for the interests of other people. This, this is a classic case of the imperative or the indicative. Because if it's a command, he's just contradicted everything he has said in the previous 30 verses. You see it? You're following? But it's, he's just stating a fact, and he's, he's rebuking them. And then he says, but I'm going to show you a better way. It's not seeking the best gifts, but you would have all the showy, look at me type of attitude. I'm going to show you love. Um, so all of that to say, going back to your notes in Hebrews 13, uh, remember them. This is in the present, but it's an, in the, it's an imperative. In other words, it's a command. Um, in other words, this is something we need to continually do, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is something that, that is true then, and it continues on, and we, this is a command. We must do this. It's not just stating a fact that they remember them that are in bonds, this is an imperative. You need to remember them that are in bonds. You need to remember them that are being afflicted. And that is an ongoing thing that not only do the readers of this book back at the writing of this book need to do, but all believers down through history, we need to continually remember these two groups of people. Those who are in bonds, that's in prison, and those who are afflicted. And whom he is, who, who, not whom, but who is he talking about uh, here? He's talking about believers. Back in verse 1, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 13, he said, let, uh, let brotherly love continue. And we discussed that possibility last week. Uh, is brotherly love there? Speaking of his Jewish brethren according to the flesh. Uh, I think that's distinctly possible. But the second possibility, which I think is certainly the case, is his, their, his, the spiritual brethren. In other words, we are to continually love our brethren, spiritual brethren. And, and that's before anybody else. And we looked at that last week. In the context then, uh, remembering them that are in bonds are your brethren. And I think in the context here, it's certainly believers. And there were people in the first century, right, that were thrown in prison. Think of maybe one of the writers of this book, or the writer, not one of the writers, only one writer. Paul. I mean, you know, Paul wouldn't be, let, he would be refused membership in most churches in America today. He was a prisoner. He murdered people. You don't want that type of guy in your church. Uh, well, he was a prisoner. Um, there were believers being cast into prison. And that is true down through history. Now, so you got these two thoughts. And then remember them, uh, that, that present tense imperative is for both of these things. Um, so number one, we are to have sympathy for those imprisoned. And it's for their faith. Um, and that, that's important. Um, now, 
we generally can't relate to that in the United States. How many people do you know in this country have been imprisoned for their faith? Doesn't happen. You know, just vote in the, uh, the leftist party uh, in the, into the Congress, the Senate, and the presidency, and I think we'll see it very quickly. You know, it won't happen, won't be too long before it. But, thank God, it doesn't happen right now. Um, but does it happen in other parts of the world? All over the world. Uh, they're in prison, they have their head cuts off, you know, whatever the case might be. So, so really, we, we, there, there's nothing here, because it is for believers, and it is because they're in prison for what they believe. Not what they do. I mean, maybe they're witnessing or something, but it's primarily what they be, believe, and they're tossed into prison. So presently, I put in the U.S., believers are not imprisoned for their faith. Um, it's not the case around the world. Many believers are imprisoned for their faith. The admi admonition is that we, though not presently in prison, could very well one day be imprisoned for our faith. Thus, we are to minister to believers who are presently unjustly imprisoned, realizing one day that could be us. And, and that's the thought. Remember that them that are in bonds as bound with them. And, and the thought is, we need to realize that there are people, not in our country, but around the world, that are in prison because of their faith that could very, and will one day, let, let's just put it like that, one day, this country will be imprisoning Christians for their faith. How far away is that? I don't know. Uh, certainly in the tribulation period. Uh, probably if the Lord tarries uh, before the tribulation period hearts, uh, starts. So we need to um, sympathize, uh, relate to these people, literally understanding that this could happen to us as well. Um, now, um, look at the second thought. Um, we are to have sympathy for those afflicted and going through trials. Uh, and again, this is as a result of their faith. Now, perhaps I should have put 1 Peter 4 above the box. But look at 1 Peter 4, and this is, this is key. Um, look at verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So we should expect trials in our life. It comes to the territory. All who live godly, 1 Timothy 4 says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You don't hear a lot on that type of, of that type of preaching today. Uh, you get a much bigger crowd if you tell them if you follow the Lord Jesus, you're going to get a lot of money. You're going to live forever healthily, he with health. And, uh, and uh, just send me the seed money and you'll get a new car. And the only one who gets a new car is the preacher. Um, you know, the health and the wealth, uh, the God, you know, that, that draws the crowds. You know, look at Joel Osteen, look at Benny Hinn, look at um, that ilk, that type of thing. Bible says... All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Hey, why don't you become a believer? Why don't you live for this Lord? And I guarantee you, you're going to suffer. I'm not sure I want to do that. So, um, 
you know, you know I've got enough problems with my spouse right now. Well, I, what do I need more problems by becoming a Christian? Um, I know everybody just looked at their spouse. And so, but anyway, um, so anyway, you don't get a lot. But, that, but that's so, but don't think it's strange. Then verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So we're, we're literally as if we're partaking of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed. When will Jesus' glory be revealed? Second coming. Yeah, when he comes back to earth. And when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Because you're, you know, then all the world's going to realize, hey, I was on the wrong side. And you were on the right side. I blew it. Then it says, verse, if you, verse 14, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, if you suffer, if you have affliction, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. We should, we should joy in that. We should be thankful. Now, I know that's completely opposite to what the world teaches. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. Those are the ones who are afflicting, persecuting, uh, giving, giving you reproach because of what you've done in the name of Christ. On their part, he, Jesus, is evil spoken of. On your part, he is glorified. When you take the reproach, when you take the suffering, when you take the affliction, glorifying God in it. But then this qualifier, this reminder. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. I, I think there's a, um, there's a descending order here. My guess in this room tonight there's no murderers, unless you want to confess right now. That's my guess. Uh, ah, thieves. <laughs> well, how many of us cheated on our taxes in the past? Um, anyway, we won't go down that road. So, but but you know, we don't go rob banks. I, let me. We, uh, is there any bank robbers in this room? Nah, I don't think there's any bank robbers in this room. Evildoers. Well, I think that's a step down if you will. But boy, does it hit home in, in, in the last thought. Busybody in other men's matters. <laughs> that covers everybody, you know. Well, that's not a big deal. I'm just trying to pray for the person. If I can't, you know, if I don't find out what the issues are in their life, how can I pray for them? How can I tell my neighbor who can pray for them, you know? Um, so we got to be careful about being busybodies. Uh, in other people's matters, uh, and, and ultimately suffer, you know, because the person who finds out you're intruding into their lives and their affairs, not being asked to by that person, they, they, can, they can get upset at you and, and that type of thing. And uh, so don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, if any man suffer as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, that's a follower of Christ, the Messiah, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. So what we're talking about is 
those who are afflicted, or as it says in the verse, suffer them, suffer, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. You're suffering because of your faith. And those of us, now, now th that last phrase, as being yourselves also in the body, lots of people think that phrase refers to uh, the body of Christ. Uh, as being yourselves also in the body. And so part of the body is hurting, so we're in the body, and so we've got to care for that part of the body that is suffering, and yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of people who think that, especially a lot of the, uh, the old-time saints like Calvin and, and those, those type of things. Um, there's, but I don't think it's that, and there are many others who don't think it's that. Um, <clears throat> here's what, this one site says, the translations which hold to a strict literal rending, rendering, such as the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the King James Version, and Young's Literal Version, add no bias to suggest it refers to the individual's body whereas the versions below render it in such a way as to favor interpretation as in the individual's bodily existence, similar to the preceding note by use, which I didn't put down. The HCSB, as though you, you, were, you yourselves were suffering bodily or mistreated since you are, yourself are in a, in a body. Uh, the NET, that would be the New English translation, as though you too felt their torment, or the NIV, uh, as if you yourselves were suffering, or the NLT. Uh, i got to remember what the NLT It's the New, uh, pardon? New Living Translation, yes. As if you felt their pain in your own bodies. And the Modern Language Bible, the Berkeley, as though you were suffering physically yourselves, the International Children's Bible, as if you were suffering with them. Now, the comment that this website makes, and it's very, very uh, good, um, while I agree with the interpretive bias, in other words, that you're suffering in the body, not as part of the body of Christ, and I think that's the correct understanding as well. While I agree with the interpretive bias of the preceding translations, that's the HCSB, the NET, the NIV, the NLT, and so on, verses like Hebrews 13.3, which is what we're looking at, make the point that almost every Bible translation brings some degree of interpretation to the translation. Thus, it behooves the careful student of Scripture to carefully observe the context on their own so that they can be aware of the bias of particular versions. And this is another reason to try to do serious Bible study in one of the more literal translations, such as the NAS, the New American Standard, the ESV, the English Standard Version, the KJV, the King James Version, or the NKGV, the New King James Version, because those are more of a literal translation where all of the other translations are... Uh, Put in a word, you'll more of a paraphrase. 
And some of them are better paraphrases than others. Or another way you could put it, even commentary. In other words, the translator brings their bias into the text, and instead of interpreting it based on the translation and what the wording says, they think it should say this, so they bring their interpretation into it. That is not the job of the translator. The job of the translator is to stick to the original language and put it down on paper as close to the original language as you can, which the NAS, the uh, ESV, the KJV, the NKJV do. It's the, it's the responsibility of the reader to interpret it or the preacher who's reading it and preaching the sermon. So it's, you know, um, so if, if you're ever looking for a Bible, I would follow that rule. Get one that's closer to a literal translation. See, the others are, are, are in, in the translation world, you have what is called uh, dynamic equivalence. And dynamic equivalence is, well, this book was written 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, depending on, you know, is it Jeremiah, is it Isaiah, is it First Peter, whatever the case, you know. And so words have changed and, and meanings have changed, and so we need to give the equivalent understanding in the language today. And so we're not interpreting it, we're giving dynamic equivalence. That's what they're doing here. Well, dynamic equivalence can be right or it can be wrong. Because at that point, the interpreter, or the trans, not the interpreter, the translator, brings their biases into the text. And they may get it right or they may not. And, and, and that's, that's one of the things you need to look for in a modern translation. Um, I will never forget when the NIV was done back in the early 80s. Um, and they, tra they, they translated uh, Micah 5.2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth, on, and I'm giving the King James, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me the, to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now that last phrase, speaking of the one born in Bethlehem, who is Jesus, it's a Messianic prophecy, whose goings forth have been from eternity past, from all of old, from of old. That speaks to, very clearly to the deity of the Messiah. Well, the NIV translated, whose goings forth, origins. Well, what is or, whose origins are from of old? So what does origins communicate? You had a beginning. His goings forth, meaning from, from eternity past, he's just been doing his thing, whatever. But when you have origins, it communicates a beginning and destroys the deity of Christ. Okay? A good friend, Will Varner, who was the dean of uh, the Institute of Biblical Studies, that uh, Friends of Israel, wrote the head of the NIV committee, who was the head of the, of the translating committee, and said, that's not what that Hebrew word means. It doesn't mean origins. 
It means going is forth. Why was this translated origins? So he wrote back and he said, I agree 100% with you. You're right. That's what the Hebrew word means. But this is how it was done. We got scholars from all over the Christian world. They even had a homosexual Presbyterian woman, Virginia Mollett, who was a Presbyterian minister in San Diego when we were there, Cheryl and I. We didn't go to the church there, by the way. But anyway, uh, she was on the um, translation committee. And Church of Christ people were on the church. Uh, on trans- and, and guess which passages that the Church of Christ people insisted that they be assigned to? The baptism ones. Because in their, in their mind, baptism saved. Anyway, he said, they, then these passages, maybe a chapter, whatever the case might be, was parceled out to all these different scholars. And then they came back to a subcommittee, and the subcommittee looked at it and said, we accept this, we don't, or we modified it, and that type of thing. And when they were through, it went to the final committee, and the final committee, and you had all these different people with different beliefs on the final committee, they decided which is the correct translation that we should use. And again, and I objected to this, but against my objections, they said, yes, it's origins, but we'll put in a footnote, goings forth. And probably if you have, who has an NIV here? Nobody has an NIV? Okay, you'll find in a footnote, some versions or translations have goings forth. He says it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't be. That's dynamic equivalence. That's reading into what you think it should say. That gives you an idea of that type of thing. You want as close to an original, literal translation, not interpretation, translation of the Word of God, the original Hebrew, as you can get. Um, So, this um, dynamic equivalence nailed it. They were right. Uh, as though you felt pain in your own bodies, as if you yourselves were suffering, as though you too felt their torment. Uh, and I think it's the same thing. Um, just as identify with those who are in prison, because one day you may be in prison. In the same way, there are those who are suffering adversity um, because of their faith in their body. They're being whipped, they're being whatever the case might be. Understand also, you one day could be in the same place that they are. It's not because they're Christians you're relating, although it is because they're Christians, but it's not because we're in the body of Christ together. It's because you may be in the same predicament one day for your faith, and how do you want other believers to help you or to respond to you? In the same way, it should be that you respond to these people. You following? So it's, I, think, I think it's literally being afflicted in your body. You could be beat with a cat of nine tails. You could have your, you know, whatever the case might be. You know, a lot of people were, were, were beaten their body and died as a result. You can think of the, um, of the um, uh, around the Reformation time, what the Catholic Church did to the belief, burning them at the stake and all of that stuff. Uh, let alone the apostles and what they went through. So we are commanded to, to continually, in the imperative, remember those who are bound, who are in prison, and those who are suffer. And again, the key here is they're suffering for their faith. 
Not just anybody who suffers. Not that it's not wrong. Not that it's wrong, not to help people who are in prison because they murdered somebody. How do you help that person? You bring them the gospel. You can minister to them. But that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is people who are believers. Believers who are in prison for their faith or believers who are being persecuted on their body because of their faith. And we need to minister to those people. Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, turn the page over. How can we be sympathetic? I just put down a few things here. Uh, number one, we need to obviously identify with their affliction. Uh, ask yourself, how would you want to be treated if you were in that situation? Well, think of Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, when he grew up, when he matured, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses had it made. I mean, this guy was the right hand of the king. He was the, one of the favorite sons of, the, of, the, of Pharaoh. Uh, he lived in the palace. He had all the servants. He had all the goodies. I mean, this guy had it made. Uh, and yet, when he understood that he was a Hebrew and saw his brethren being afflicted and suffering, what did he choose to do? He gave up all that he had to identify with the people of God. That type of thing. Uh, he not, and identifying with their affliction is not only, hey, you know, I'm going to pray for you, brother. No, he more than prayed for him. He stepped into their shoes, as it were. Um, and that can be difficult. I mean, put yourself in a, in a position... Uh, you know, maybe somebody is, is just talking to somebody about the Lord and a bunch of people gather around him and don't like what he's doing and, and want to beat him to a pulp. And you're standing there and, and you're a believer. Do you shrink off into the shadows? Saying, well, he got himself in his own predicament. Or do you stand up and say, this is wrong? You know, and you take the jeopardy of what's happening to you. Same thing that could happen to him. Um, it's very difficult. You know, Mo Moses certainly had the grace of God uh, to do what he did. Would we do that type of thing for another believer? Would you want a believer to step in and, and on your side, as it were, if that type of thing was happening to you? Yeah? Yes? No? Anybody in their right mind would say yes. You know, nobody likes to be alone out there. Uh, so if you would want somebody to step in and side with you when you're doing, again, for your faith, for righteousness sake, you're not suffering because you're, you're an idiot, you know, you're a murderer, you, you know, all of that stuff. No, you're suffering. For, if you want someone to do that for you, when you see it happening, you need to step in and, and for that person right there. Um, <clears throat> be there in time of need. Oftentimes, just being present during a struggle will be an encouragement. Words are not always necessary. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, was not ashamed of my chain. He didn't, Onesiphorus, the house, the family, <coughs> they, didn't, they didn't bother them that Paul was in chains. They knew that he was in chains, prison, unjustly for his faith. They ministered to him. 
They refreshed him. They cared for him. Went against the entire flow of the culture of the day and of that society. But they didn't care. They knew that was right. And they ministered to him. And, and maybe they bought him, brought him food. Maybe they brought him water. Maybe they just stopped by and prayed with him uh, and encouraged him, whatever the case might be. Uh, it's being there. Sometimes just being with that person. Uh, give to meet the need. Philippians chapter 4, 14 through 16. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, speak Paul speaking, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once again unto my necessity. I was having affliction, I had needs, and, and brethren, you stepped up to bat. You sent things to meet my need. We can help believers when they're suffering for their faith uh, by meeting their needs financially, food, whatever the case might be in that particular thing. Hebrews 10. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions, Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. And they're commended for all through, the, through the afflictions and the problems and the people being in bonds. They ministered to them knowing that they could lose everything in doing that, realizing their reward is in heaven. It's better to, how many years are we going to live on earth? Three score or ten, or by reason of strength, four score years, 80 years, 70 to 80 years, generally speaking. Hey, none of us are under 12 here. None of us are under 30. Okay, we won't go any further than that. You know, most of us are on, uh, we're, we're, hey, we're on the back end of life. You know, we're on the tail end. You know, uh, you, know uh, you too, Bob, you too. Um, don't shake your head. Uh, we're, we're all on the tail end of life, you know, and uh, so we've seen the better days pass, at least physically speaking. Uh, so... <laughs> Why lay up stuff in, in, on earth? You know, lay it up in heaven. Now, uh, and, and good deeds toward the brethren, by the way, is, the, is a characteristic of a Bible-believing Christian. And I almost didn't put down a biblical Christian. I almost only had Christian, but I said, wait a second. That's, Christian in the world today means nothing. Uh, so I put down biblical, you know, and, and, but there's really no other kind of Christian than a biblical Christian. You know, you can call yourself a grapefruit, but that doesn't make you a grapefruit. Uh, you know, you can call yourself a Christian, but if you're not doing what Jesus said, if you're not born again, if you're not, you're not a Christian. But I put biblical Christian down. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's goods and see his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? One of the characteristics of a true believer is to help people out. Now, we looked at this last week as well. You know, another verse here. But 
how do we know that uh, we're in him? But we help believers. That's not the only thing, but that's one of the things. And 1 John 3, 14, 18, and 19, same chapter. My, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So to give to meet the needs of people, and this is speaking of Christians here. It's not wrong to help unbelievers. Do good unto all people, Galatians 6 said, but especially to whom? The household of faith. That's what this is, the household of faith. Now, let me give you a warning. And this comes from Philip Hughes' commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. And, and I love what he put here. Of course, the open-heartedness of Christians' hospitality. And that should be, a, 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 um, that should be um, intrinsic in the life of a believer. Hospitality. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to have everybody over for dinner. You know, but it, it, it's helping people. It's meeting their name. But anyway... Of course, the open-heartedness of Christian hospitality is liable to invite abuse on the part of unprincipled persons who regard it as an opportunity for eating and lodging at the expense of others. I've always said one, the Christian's command to love others and give of ourselves and meet the needs of others opens us up to charlatans more than any other group of people in the world. And you're always reading, I am anyway, of people who have just uh, taken advantage of believers in the financial world and built them out of millions of dollars, you know, uh, and, and I could give you examples. Anyway, so it goes on. Is liable to invite abuse on the part of unprincipled persons who regard as an opportunity for eating and lodging at the expense of others. In the sub apostolic period that means right after the apostles right under the apostles so the apostles were about to 100 AD this would then be roughly in the second century in the sub apostolic period for example instructions are given in the writing known as the Didache now or it's the teaching of the 12 apostles the Didache is not an inspired book but it was a book that was um, written parchment scroll that was written in the second century or so and passed around the churches and it was kind of like uh, uh, I don't know how to put it uh, it's kind of like commentary on the scripture how do we live um, you know it, and, and it was called teaching of the twelve apostles the the Didache uh, but it's not it's not canonical it's not in the Bible so it's you know but it's very interesting. Now, and here, he say, here they say that every stranger who came in the name of the Lord, that is, professing to be a fellow Christian. And if we've learned anything from the book of Hebrews, not everybody who professes Jesus is a Christian. There is professing and there is possessing. So this goes back to the early church, right after the apostles. Then Every stranger who came in the name of the Lord, that is, professing to be a fellow Christian, should be received. But that is, profession should afterward be put to the test. Now, let's hold on right there. So when somebody comes along and says, I'm a believer, we take them at their word. 
We take them at face value is what it's saying. We can't read a heart. I can't read your heart. You know, I've always said, there's only one person in this room that I know for sure is saved. That's me. I think most of you, if not all of you, are saved, but I only know one person in this room for sure is saved. That's me. Um, I don't know your hearts. You could be a deceiver. I don't think you are. Don't get me wrong here. Uh, So what he said, when somebody claims to be a believer, accept him. Accept at face value their word that they're a Christian, but test the spirits, as it were. Or as it says, is afterwards that his profession should be put to the test. Okay. Then it goes on. He says, and if a wayfarer, he's passing through town, he needs a place to stay, he needs a meal, and if he's a wayfarer, his stay should be for only two or three days. Very brief. Still more problematic was the appearance of men who falsely, but often persuasively, claimed to be Christian teachers, apostles, and prophets. So there, this is a bigger problem because you had people come along who actually claimed to be apostles, prophets, Christian teachers, and, 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 and Christian people respect. They shouldn't revere, but they respect. They're, they're teachers, they're pastors. There's no apostles and prophets today. But, the, you know, the, the, the men and even the women that God has gifted to teach, you know, we, we respect that. Don't you, you, if, you're, if your pastor is a godly individual, not perfect, if you're looking for a perfect pastor, go to heaven. He's there. He's not here. So... But you, 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 you respect your pastor. You, you, in that sense, you honor your pastor. And, and later on in chapter 13, we'll talk about honor being given to teachers and pastors. But we're not at that point yet. So it goes on. If they claim to be Christian teachers, uh, apostles, and prophets, anyone whose teaching was contrary to the doctrine those early Christians had received was naturally to be rejected. So if it's doctrinally incorrect, that's natural to reject it. But notice this last phrase. But also anyone who stayed for more than two days or who asked for money was to be dismissed as an imposter and a parasite. Wow. That's strict. Somebody comes through town and says, I'm a believer and I'm a teacher. or I'm not a teacher, but I'm a Christian. And I need a place of lodging. And, and that's obvious, especially in biblical days. Because, you know, there were no Motel 6s back then. You know, we'll keep the light on for you type of thing. Uh, They would need a place to stay. And and they would find the believing community. And if he claimed to be a Christian, put him up. But you don't put him up for more than two or three days. And if that individual then would say, hey, I need to stay longer. Or he says, well, now it's over. Could you give me some money as I go on my way? He's a parasite. He's an imposter. He's false. Don't have anything that will do. Wow. There was a problem in the early church with false professions, charlatans, deceivers, taking advantage, working miracles. This is all throughout the, 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 the epistles warning us of that type of thing. This is not scripture. This is commentary on scripture. How do we deal with imposters? How do we deal with Christian hospitality? 
You receive everybody as a brother or sister, as a believer. But try them. And if they continue on living off of you, they're asking you to give stuff to them. This is not helping people that you know that are in ministry or you know that have real needs in life and, and so on, and they're just going through hard times. This is a stranger that comes into your midst. You receive them at face value, but they could be false. This opens up believers to being taken advantage of. And, and it happens to, there's, there's no way to get around it. There's just no way to get around it. You don't hang on with that individual. Um, I, I remember when we first moved to North Carolina, I think I've shared this story before. I was invited down to um, Asheboro, where one of our men lived at the time. And he said, you've got to come down and meet this financial advisor. And, and I've invested my entire savings, $200,000 with him, and he has guaranteed me a 3 or 4% return every month. And right away, whoo, all the red flags are flying. And I said, well, I'll come down and talk to him. And um, <coughs> he tried to sell me on his investment. It was Monex, Money Exchange, International Exchange. You know, and, and this man of mine, he got paid for three months. And he got 3% for three or four months on his $200,000. So what did he get? Ultimately, $18,000, $20,000 back. Well, when I told him I, I wasn't going to invest with him, he got very upset at me. He said, it's just, you know, I'm not going to bet. It just doesn't sound, yeah, I'm just not going to. I don't think I impugned his character. Well, the long and the short of it, I think it was six months later, he was in jail for fraud for stealing millions of dollars from Christians, including the $200,000 of our, my coworker. Um, and he was using that money to pay off others that he could then say, well, call Johnny Christian. And he'll tell you that he's getting a return. Well, you get a return for, you know how, this, how that works. And he, I'm a, I'm a believer in all the terminology. I go to this church, yada, yada. He was, he, was a, he was a charlatan. But Christians are said, because you want to believe people. And we should believe people at their word initially. But we've got to try it. And, and when we're commanded to be sympathetic and help people, there are times we will be burned. Chalk it up to the Lord. And you did it for the Lord, leave it with the Lord. That's all. We can pray. Well, I still got to get through the marriage stuff. Um, Colossians 4.18, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you, amen. That was remember my bonds. Remember me in prayer while I'm in prison, Paul says. Okay, I, I, let's see if we can get through this. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you have a special dispensation not to like everybody no, no because we have to love everybody doesn't mean we're best friends with everybody you know um, you know we should treat believers respectfully and and courteously uh, you know that type of you don't have to hang out with every Christian that comes across your path 
Um, you can't, number one, it's physically impossible, but, you know, we all have different interests and likes, and, and you know, so, you know, if, if you don't get along as well with so-and-so, then don't hang out with so-and-so. You know, don't speak badly about him, you know. Um, <clears throat> unless he's an incorrigible pork-eating wine-bibber, that's a whole different story. But anyway, <laughs> so, I love you, Bob. <laughs> 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 Give him a heart attack back there. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Um, verse number four. Bob knows I kid him about that. I think sometimes he's wondering if I'm kidding. But uh, okay, look at verse number four. Uh, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, there's a very, you know, certainly there's a contrast here. <coughs> and um, the, the, the main thrust, actually, of this uh, passage here is, is sex. Is sex, having physical relations with, um, you know, in, in, in the marriage bed, it's with your spouse. You know, man with a woman, woman with a man. Uh, but the, but the, other, the, the other flip side of this verse, whoremongers and adulterers, uh, God will judge. And, and it's the improper use of the gift of sex that God has given to us. But it starts out, my marriage is honorable. Um, marriage is holy. Tragically today, Christians have the same incidence of divorce as non-Christians. And, and I've got to wonder how many of these people are really believers. Um, many Christian churches attempt to, attempt to dissuade. And I know there are probably people here who have been divorced. I understand that. So, um, you know. So, and I, I'm sure if you would rather not have been divorced, I've never been divorced. I never plan on getting divorced. Because um, Carol said, if you get divorced, I'm going to shoot you. Um, so, so, she never said that, you know, so. Right, Cheryl? She's not answering me. <laughs> She's going to shoot me anyway after this, just on general principle. So, <laughs> so. I'm getting a lot of trouble. So anyway, um, let me just read it. Now, among many Christian churches, attempts to dissuade congregants from getting a divorce, the research, uh, churches attempt to dissuade congregants from getting a divorce. The research confirmed the finding identified by Barna, the Barna's um, stuff, many years ago, and further confirmed through tracking studies conducted each year since, Born-again Christians have the same likelihood of divorce as do non-Christians. Among married born-again Christians, 35%, it may be higher today, have experienced divorce. That figure is identical to the outcome among married adults who are not born again, 35%. That's tragic. That, that shouldn't be. Um, it just shouldn't be. Um, Titus 2.14 who gave himself for us, Jesus did, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify him to, unto himself a peculiar people, different people, zealous of good works. We should be different from the world. And when you look at the divorce statistics, we're not different than the world. It's tragic. Um, so what is the problem among professing evangelical Christians? In one of the most important biblical institutions, there's no difference between professing believers in the world and the result. The institution of, that should be a G instead of an H, the institution of marriage 
has always been under attack. Probably more so today than ever before. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. And I believe 1 Timothy, uh, this is speaking of the times that we are living in. The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Forbidding to marry. Now, the first thing you might think of here would be the priesthood of the Catholic Church. They are forbidden to marry to be priests. And, and, and whoa, what has that caused through the years? You know, with pedophilia, you know, all, you know, you know uh, but forbidding to marry in the last days. This article, <coughs> and this is an excerpt, comes from uh, Madeline Somerville, uh, University of Calgary in 2003. <coughs> she said there has been an influx, a smart, powerful woman into the corporate world. And they are not only working for big name companies, they're running them. Women hold crucial government, governmental positions are the brains beyond brilliant internet ventures like eBay and are breaking the wage barrier, earning as much in some cases if not more than men. With all these changes, and this is 16 years ago, does the modern woman even need to be married? If it's feasible, and for the most part socially acceptable, to cohabit with a partner, share a bed, create children, carry on a life with all the trappings of marriage, but without the actual ceremony and piece of paper, the question is no longer why some women choose to forgo marriage, but why so many aren't. Why do so many young women get married when odds are 55% of them will fall apart? She puts it at 55%. The motives for most aren't financial anymore. And despite the number of weddings still taking place in religious venues, many couples aren't practicing a faith of any kind, ruling out religious reasons for marriage. Perhaps they think they've found the one and want to make sure they stick around. But surely everyone knows that you can go on TV and find the soulmate you've been searching your whole life for within weeks. <clears throat> Perhaps marriage is yet another social ritual that has lost its meaning, yet for some reason still retains its role in society. Many of us don't know why we walk down the aisle. It's just what's done. As a result, there are countless loveless marriages held feebly together by a wish to protect the children, avoid costly divorce proceedings, or keep up appearances. Wouldn't it be better, she suggests, for all involved if individuals entered relationships upheld not by law, but by love, and a genuine desire to spend the rest of their lives together. She is a proponent of cohabitation based on love, not marriage. In April of 2016, Barna Report said this. It's talking about cohabitating prior to marriage. Practicing Christians are highly unlikely to believe cohabitation is a good idea. And the stark contrast with those <coughs> who identify as having no faith, 88%, further demonstrates the acute impact of religious beliefs on views regarding cohabitation. 
But look closer at the numbers. 88% of those having no faith had no problem with the idea of cohabitation. That's a lot of people. That's almost everybody. But notice practicing Christians. 41% of them, which is a lot more than the 12% of everybody else that, you know, 41% of them are highly unlikely to believe cohabitation is a good idea. What about the other 59%? That's what blew my mind. Why are you extolling the virtues of 41% who don't think cohabitation is a good idea when you're a practicing Christian when 59% of practicing Christians say it's a good idea? What has this world come to? It's just crazy. And it goes on. <clears throat> However, religious leaders will be wise to notice that a growing number of their constituents, particularly in young, younger demographics, are accepting Cohabitation is the norm, concludes Stone, who was the writer of this article. So preachers, wise up. Your younger people want to cohabitate together out of marriage. No big deal. If you make it a big deal, you're going to lose them. Wow. Marriage is a holy institution. And yet, in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage <clears throat> is a right protected by the U.S. Constitution in every state, 50 states, or 57 states if you're the former president, but that's a whole other story. But understand this. Calling a union between two men or between two women marriage does not make it marriage. Don't ever refer to it as marriage. It's a union, it's cohabitation, it's sin, it's a whole bunch of stuff. It is not marriage. Marriage is not ordained and ruled by the state, no matter what laws they pass. Marriage is ordained by God. It's one of the first and it's one of the basic institutions of society, and it's always between a man and a woman. I put a number of verses down here, but I want us to look at just one, Genesis 2, 24. There shall, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, they shall be one flesh. Leave. It's been said that the two best legacies parents can leave their children are roots and wings. The security of knowing that mom and dad are always there to help and encourage in time of special need, but also the freedom to live one's own life and develop one's own family. Leave. And then cleave. The Hebrew word for cleave suggests the idea of being glued together. It is used in Job 38.38 of dirt clods which stick together after the rain. It is used by Joshua of a military alliance in Joshua 23.12. It is used of the leprosy that would cling forever to dishonest and greedy Gehazi, 2 Kings 5.27. It means to be glued together. In order to be glued to another, you must leave your parents. But notice, the, the man is especially addressed as needing to be glued to his wife. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. There's too many male skirts around this. You know, it maybe it's because men have a propensity to be mama boys. I don't know. You know but, but the male is specifically mentioned here 
hey, you got to leave dad. You got to leave mom. And you got to cleave on to your wife. Um, it doesn't mean that women may not have that uh, propensity as well to want to go back home. Uh, but both, but, but the man is mentioned here, <coughs> and you cleave together. You become one flesh. <coughs> Becoming one flesh speaks of the sexual union that takes place in marriage. Before marriage, we are to remain holy. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 Peter, 1 Thessalonians 4 through 3 and 4. 1 Peter 3 and 7. <coughs> Men are to honor woman in our courtship, our dating, by staying sexually pure. That's with that individual you're dating. Women and men are to stay pure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 30 and 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. We are to avoid fornication. I want to talk about fornication in a moment. <coughs> it's, it's, and by the way, it's the marriage. I'm going to have to open this water. Uh, it is the marriage covenant that establishes a marriage. <coughs> in Malachi 2.14. It's not the sexual act. It's the marriage covenant. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord had been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of your covenant. That's why it's important to get married, not just cohabitate. Sexual union is not a marriage. A marriage is a covenantal relationship before God when you sign that paper. I don't care whether it's in front of a preacher or whether it's before a justice of the peace. Uh, I think either way is acceptable, but you're doing that before God, especially as a believer. It's a covenant. It's a marriage covenant. That establishes the marriage. Rennie Showers, Dr. Showers, <coughs> in his little booklet, Lawfully Wedded, puts it this way. It is precisely because of the lifelong nature of the marital, one flesh relationship that Christ declared, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. As noted earlier, it was for the same reason that Paul declared that a husband and wife are bound to each other until one of them dies. In other words, the marriage covenant is a life term or permanent covenant. It's the marriage covenant that makes you married. It's not cohabitating. That doesn't make you married. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, uh, talking about they become one flesh. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. The covenant is important. God established holy matrimony. And you get married, and in the and a believer should be before God, let alone before the witnesses invited to the wedding, but it's a, it's, a, it's a covenant before God. It's a marriage covenant. The state has no right. No city. No man. No religious organization. It is a covenant God has established between a man and a woman, husband and wife. <coughs> and the word abstain from fornication 
In Hebrew, it's zana. In Greek, it's pornea. Fornication. <coughs> Excuse me. Is voluntary sexual intercourse between a man and woman who are not married to each other. Or it could be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Or between a man and an animal. Or a woman and an animal. Adultery is one type of fornication, pornea. In every form, <coughs> fornication was sternly condemned by the Mosaic law among God's people, the Israelites. It's mentioned fornication many times in the New Testament. We're not going to look at those verses. Uh, they are there for you later. <coughs> but on the last page, this comes from Dr. Henry Morris. <clears throat> the Greek word for fornication, pornea, could include any sexual sin committed after the betrothal contract. You're engaged. In biblical usage, fornication can mean any sexual congress outside, and congress is to, to join together, <clears throat> outside monogamous marriage. It thus includes not only premarital sex, but also adultery, homosexual acts, incest, remarriage after unbiblical divorce, and sexual acts with animals, all of which are explicitly, expre explicitly forbidden in the laws given through Moses. Christ expanded the prohibition against adultery to include even sexual lusting. Pornea is a, is a wide word, embracing a lot of sexual acts. The word fornication is sometimes used in a symbolic sense in the Bible, meaning a forsaking of God, following after idols. Again, Henry Morris and Martin Clark, in their The Bible Has the Answer book, says this. <coughs> the Old Testament provides several or severe punishment for those who disdainfully regard, disregard, or, or regard marriages, privileges, and responsibilities. One of the Ten Commandments states, you shall not commit adultery. And the law required that those who convicted of adultery receive the death penalty. The New Testament does not require capital punishment for adultery, but assures that God will judge those who are not married or who indulge in that sexuality which God has reserved for marriage. That's what the second part of verse 4 talks about. Sexual impropriety resulted in expulsion from the church, 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul warned of those who with empty words led others into immorality, the judgment they would face. Eternal judgment awaits those who practice immorality and fail to repent. Marriage is honorable, the scripture says. It's, a, it's precious, it's dear, it's esteemed. God hates divorce. It's the breaking of a covenant. We see that in Malachi chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> talking about, yet you say, wherefore? Because the Lord had been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of your covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he not the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed? 
Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none debt deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the God, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hates putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. God hates divorce. It's because it's breaking a very solemn covenant that you have made before God. The marriage bed is undefiled. Sex within marriage is good and holy. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Ephesians 5, 6. First, the one I want to look at is Romans 1, 26 and 27. You know, the other ones talk about fleeing fornication and uh, that type of thing, not being named among saints. But in Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Also likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Homosexuality, lesbianism. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet or required or do them. When you, when you get involved in pornea, fornication, whatever form it is, you will end up getting into your body all kinds of problems like HIV, AIDS, like gonorrhea, like all the sexually transmitted diseases. And I gather from my reading, one of the big problems that we have today among young people is sexually transmitted diseases. It is rampant because they sleep around with everybody. And I'm not just talking about homosexuals or lesbians. God will judge whoremongers. And if people don't repent, they will be judged by being sent to hell one day if that is the practice of their life. Marriage is honorable. Sexual relations in marriage is, is good and acceptable and enjoyable, but in any other setting, it's fornication, it is sinful, and God will judge you. And we have that example of that one man in the church in Corinth in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was having sexual relations with his stepmother, and he was going to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh because of his sin. He was a believer. God will judge believers. They won't lose their salvation, but he will discipline them. Some very practical advice continues, and we'll, we'll look at some more, Lord willing, next week uh, as we continue on in chapter 13. Any, any questions before we close in prayer? I'd just like to make one comment that all sexual fornication you're speaking of leads to unwanted children, abortion, single parent families with children who live in poverty and have a, a very poor outcomes, you know, predicted outcomes in their life. It's, it leads to a lot of uh, other. So, a lot of, lot of problems for the individual, a lot of societal problems as well. Yes. Yeah. So, anything else? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these uh, very pointed admonitions <coughs> to believers, Lord, uh, and help us to take them to heart, uh, help us to honor you in our lives and our practice, help us to glorify our Savior. 
uh, Lord, uh, these are very practical admonitions. We need to take them to heart. Bless our fellowship, bless the food, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.